Wildish is a story about the humans tangled in the world of wild horse management, activists aching for the animals to be wild, those who see them as invasive, and the people with the Bureau of Land Management faced with balancing the horse as a relic of Wild West heritage, along with its impact on the landscape. From High Country News, in collaboration with Alan Warda's Media, I'm Anna Coburn, and this is Wildish. Don't, don't. Because we are going home in this very second. <laughs> and you came here for nothing. It's fine, I'll just drive <laughs> five hours for now. The first time I saw wild horses, I was in the Sandwash Basin of northwestern Colorado. It's over 150,000 acres of vast, open country. There are over 50 miles of very bumpy roads. And nearly 800 wild horses. From High Country News, in collaboration with Alan Warda's Media, this is Wildish. The voice you hear is Patty Mosby. She's an advocate for the Sandwash Basin. She takes beautiful pictures of these horses. I also want to say saying Sandwash Basin is really hard, so I might just stick to Sandwash. <laughs> I reached out to Patty and she offered to show me around the Sandwash without me even having to ask. So we met early in the morning and I climbed in her truck. I wasn't even sure if we would see wild horses, and if we did, I figured we would have to use our binoculars. But to my surprise, in less than an hour into our adventure, they were right by the road. Now, you see this stallion will put his head down and his ears back and follows the mares? That's called snaking. And it's because he wants them to move. He wants them to move up the hill. Wild horses don't just stand around and eat, although that'd be a pretty sweet life. <laughs> they have a complex and competitive social structure. So if you look at the roan's left ear, he's lost the tip of it. Uh-huh. That's significant when we're trying to ID him. The little snip on his nose, and he's got the, he probably got it bit off. Tracy Scott from our previous episode, the co-founder of Steadfast Steeds, explained to me how the families work. In the wild, there's a lead stallion and a lead mare, and then there's family members. Um, usually there's some other mares or other girls that are, are having babies with the stallion. But the lead mare, her role is safety. She makes sure that the family is safe. She leads them to water. She leads them to the best nibbles of grass. And she lets them know it's time to go, regardless of what reason it's time to go, because they all trust her to take them to safety. Uh, The stallion, the lead stallion of the group, his job is procreation and protection. He has the right to breed the mares in his group, and he gets tough and shows the other horses, the other girl horses, that he's a tough enough guy to protect them. And so they decide to go with that particular stallion or a different stallion based on how well or how safe they feel when they're with him or in his presence. So he's looking for a way to show off and make sure that he can be the safest stallion to be with, and the girls decide. 
Seeing it in person, though, that was awesome because I saw them fight and I saw them mate and I was just right there. I could walk up to them. It was crazy. Oh, come on. You guys can't come any closer. Uh-uh. Nope. Hannah's just overwhelmed. <laughs> she just can't even believe it. As well as being a photographer, Patty is also a volunteer for the BLM. She goes out and she darts the horses with birth control. The first time we dart a horse, we dart her with a what we call a primer dose. It's a stronger dose. We use an air gun to shoot the darts. Those are shot from an average of 40 yards. And the dart, as soon as the dart hits the mare, there's a charge inside of it that ignites and it, it then ejects the, the PCB into the mare and pushes the dart back out of the mare so that that doesn't stay in her. At which time, we make every attempt to find the dart in the field and recover those. So after the mare's been primed, we have to wait at least two weeks. Then we come back and we want to give her a booster. Preferably, we want to give her a booster uh, within the same year. And what that booster does, it just kind of wakens up what you did with the primer. So we do need to be darting year-round, and we do dart in, in Samwash Basin year-round if we can get into the basin. PZP, and that's a Z in the middle, as in zebra, stands for porc porcine zona pellucida. I butchered that. Someone knows how to say it correctly. But for our purposes, we'll say the PZP vaccine. PZP is made up from using pig ovaries. Those are ground up and mashed up, and then they use an adjuvant to deliver that into the horse. So great. That solves the overpopulation problem. We can just start them with PZP and stop rounding them up via helicopter, and the controversy is over right? Of course not. I wouldn't be doing a podcast if it was that simple. We're only on the second episode. If you didn't catch how meticulous it is from what Patty had described earlier, then go back and listen. You not only have to keep up with the mares that you've darted, you have to dart them twice. You have to be good at shooting a dart gun, and you have to do this year after year. Most of the people who do this are volunteers. They're not getting paid for it. They do it because they have the time and because they love the horses. There isn't enough time, money, or resources for this to be a viable solution. In fact, the BLM wants to start spaying in the field to cut long-term costs. That's something we'll talk about later on in the series. Now, you're probably wondering why they don't just, you know, snip snip the stallions. But the way it's been described to me is you can't catch all of the stallions, and those that are still intact are going to, quote, cover the rest of the mares. So it doesn't really work. It's hard, having ovaries. Patty kept pulling out an Excel spreadsheet of all the horses she had already darted and all the horses she had yet to dart. She knew their bands and their babies. And a useful tool to keep up with the horses is to name them. And that seems perfectly natural because they're horses. But if they're wild, why would we do that? We don't go up to an elk herd and name elk Jeff and Starburst. But unlike elk, horses are distinctive. They look different. They have different breeds. And they have this thing about capturing our hearts. 
That's why she deserved a nicer name, I think. She would, she would have deserved a nicer name. What would you have named her? I don't know, but I would have looked up something, a Native American, because she really is exceptionally beautiful. I met Otilia the same day I was with Patty in the sand wash. Otilia is a friend of Patty's and a fellow wild horse photographer. Patty told me Otilia didn't like people, <laughs> and that's why she hangs out with horses all the time. So I kept my distance because I had a microphone, and that's kind of intimidating. Okay, actually, I was really intimidated by Otilia. But after a while, we started cracking each other up. The next day, we went to the first day of the Great American Horse Drive together. The Great American Horse Drive happens every year. It starts right around the sand wash and eventually goes through the town of Maybell, Colorado. We put up our camp chairs in a pretty good spot, close enough for her to get great pictures and me to get great audio. Until the lady told us, maybe not right there. Reluctantly, we moved and sure enough, A few hundred ranch horses being herded by cowpoke almost ran us over. Could you believe we were? <laughs> Thank you so much. Otelia invited me to Wyoming, to Rock Springs well, outside of Rock Springs, to see the Salt Wells herd management area and the horses that she has become so familiar with. In late July, I drove the seven hours to meet her before sunrise. As the sun broke over the horizon, several bands of horses came down to the creek for their morning drink. Otelia and I watched the horses for hours until an afternoon storm started rolling in. As we were trying to dodge the wind and the rain, the horses began to play and run. We had such a great day together. I don't know how I convinced her to let me interview her, but we agreed to meet in the sand wash a few weeks later so she could tell her story. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold it like this and just, it, okay. it's kind of weird. It's so very <laughs> weird, so I probably will not even look that way. You don't have to look at me, it's fine. Um, what is your full name? Otilia Marcos. What is your title? What do you do? You're a photographer, right? Yes, I am a photographer. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, because I was like, oh my god, now what? what are you still recording? <laughs> I, can I didn't realize that we were already going. Oh, okay. It was really windy in the sand wash that day, so please forgive the sound. At one point, we had to hide from the wind behind her car. She wanted to tell me about different incidents she's had with the BLM that fed her distrust and her distaste. Her first story was about what happened after she called the BLM to get them to come check on an injured foal. Yeah, he was at the water hole with obvious spinal injury. He was bleeding from the mouth. He tried to graze, but as he was chewing, tried to chew anyway, the, the grass was falling out of his mouth. He was hardly able to get some water because he was unable to walk. Uh, so that lady came 
who had nothing to do with the white horse program and uh, she walked around him for five ten seconds that only took her to realize that the fall was okay and uh, well eventually uh, after I made a, a fuss on the internet and uh, asking people to to call in to help that fall either it was Monday or Tuesday morning they announced that they had to put the fall down because it was necessary but that fall was out there for a whole week suffering in obvious pain because up until then I wasn't against them I needed to experience what other people had told me about how they they don't manage it well. I'm not saying that they don't care about the horses. It's the management. They don't manage the horses well. She went on to tell me another story about a foal, one she had told me all those months ago when I first met her. It was a really windy day. Storm was moving in, and the horses spooked. They were, they were running around crazy. So I just decided to go home. And uh, as I was driving by the sagebrush from the corner of my eye, I saw something popped his head up and first I thought it was an antelope so I, I just moved back and it was a little it was it was a fall and uh, I could tell it was really really young and uh, he was just looking at me and he got up and uh, he got up and he walked up to my car and he tried to suck off the tires of my car he was hungry and I could tell he was he was getting dehydrated, so I called the BLM and uh, and the lady I'm not gonna name. She she was very helpful. She she said that she would talk to someone who's in higher position, and uh, so I was transferred to him. And he said that the mother will probably come back to get that fall. And I may have not grown up by surrounded by horses, but I know this much that when a foal is left behind, there is a reason. It's either a sick horse or or the mother was too young, but a, foal, a mare would never leave a foal behind, ever. They would kill for their baby. So I know that the mare will not come back. Anyway, he told me that they will come and check on that fall the following morning so I asked him to transfer me back to her and I told her that there is no way I was gonna leave that fall out there on his own being hungry until the next morning so I I told her that if they are not coming to get the fall I'm gonna sleep on the mountain until they arrive so it took me some back and forth conversations with him and then eventually they did come to get the fall if I wasn't insistive I don't think they would have uh, I remember that day uh, there was a wrangler as well who who came with them and, and I asked him how old he thought that fall was and he said oh probably about three four months well it turned out the fall was not even one week old and uh, there was another incident where I found a, a horse with a halter on at the water hole so I I called the BLM and uh, I was transferred to someone who I thought he was a really, he was a great person. I'm not going to name him. He was not happy with me for making those phone calls about the falls and making a fuss on, on Facebook and getting people to call them. He told me to stay away from the horses. 
just like that. Then she told me a more recent story. I was out with a friend and uh, we ran into a beautiful Palomino foe with a dislocated shoulder. It was either dislocated or broken, but uh, she could hardly keep up with the band. I asked my friend to call the BLM because they know me, so they probably wouldn't have taken me seriously. And that's exactly what happened. She told them what was going on. He said, okay, we are coming to get the fall. What car are you driving? I said to her, just just tell him that it's me, it's my car. He will know. He started questioning her all over again. It was a Friday afternoon. So we thanked them for coming out and taking care of that poor horse. So, you know, she's not going to suffer for days with that dislocated, broken shoulder. And he said that, uh, they thought that it's best to come out before I make another fuss over the internet. I thought that was again very unprofessional. So they have no right to treat people like that. And then they wonder why people hate them. I asked Otilia why wild horses are so important to her. I feel they saved me. I feel they, they saved my life. When I moved here, I had no family, I had no friends. And uh, I found it very hard to, to cope without them, to, to have nobody. And I think it was loneliness. That was the reason why I went and just looked for the wild horses. And I fell in love with them as I photographed them and followed them, followed their lives. They are just, they're, they're different. They are so different than domesticated horses. They are, they are a spirit to them. They are, they are wild. They are curious. They are very curious. I asked Otilia how she thought the horses should be managed. I would rather have the mares darted with PZP, with birth control, than that so inhumanly chase them with helicopters. We have no right to do that. Stallions, mares, they end up with broken legs. Falls run off the cliff and they die, or just being run over by the horses. We have no right to do that to them. If the population has to be controlled, they should do that by PZP, by, by birth control, not by killing them. Not by killing them. When I was interviewing Otelia, It was hard for me not to cry, too. I've been obsessed with horses since I was a little girl. I grew up riding them. I grew up drawing them. And pretending I was one in the school hallway. I was that weird kid. So hearing Otelia's story made me angry. It made me sad. And I was thinking, well, these people just don't like horses. How come that they end up being shot, chased by four-wheelers, or or kids throwing stones, rocks, apples, or treats at them, and it's okay. They should be out there and do their jobs, not just from the office. They being the BLM. I had to know the other side. I had to know why the BLM seemed callous and negligent. But maybe it's because our ideas of management vary from person to person. So why not ask a wildlife biologist? Why not ask someone who really knows about wildlife management? Do we manage them like a wild animal? Where again, you know, we we have uh, hunting seasons and 
nuisance trapping and things like that for wild species when the population gets too big. Do we manage them like livestock then? They're really not livestock either because at the moment they're not domestic. They fall between the cracks. But one thing that we have to remember, there's a huge cultural significance to the horse. Our human culture evolved with the domestication of the horse. I want to thank everyone who participated in this episode. And Otelia, if you're listening, thanks for trusting me with your stories. In addition to talking to a wildlife biologist, in the next episode of Wildish, we will talk to an Australian native about Brumbies and a senior extension agent at the Navajo Department of Agriculture. That's all next time. Thanks for listening. All the music in Wildish was written and performed by me. Thanks, Mike, for letting me borrow your guitar. A huge shout out to High Country News, Alan Warda's Media, Dr. Corey Knapp, and the lady who hugged me at the Rangelands Conference. Please rate Wildish wherever you get your podcasts.